E-commerce isn't just an aspect of growing a successful wine business, it is crucial. And that's why I strongly recommend working with Offset Partners. As a proudly independent e-commerce technology and brand design company based in wine country, Offset understands the operational nuances and the customer service imperatives that distinguish a great online buying experience from a mediocre one. And that's why leading and legendary brands like Saxum, Arnott Roberts, and Kermit Lynch Wine Merchant choose Offset's proprietary commerce technology platform to power their DTC sales. If you're an allocated winery or a high-touch merchant that values an elegant, effective commerce solution for both you, your customers, and your team, reach out to the smart team at offsetpartners.com. That's O-F-F-S-E-T, partners with an S, dot com, to craft a better direct-to-consumer experience. I'm Levy Dalton, and this is All Drink to That, where we get behind the scenes of the wine business. So we're here today with Rita Jamais, uh, sort of an icon of both restaurants and wine in the New York and Manhattan scene. Thank you so much for taking the time to meet with us. Bonjour, and thank you very much for having me. I'm very th- excited to be here. So it's what was your original vision for La Carvel in 84? What were you thinking about? Um, in 84, actually, it's more stepping into a new situation for us, yeah. meaning with the history already, heavy history. Uh, as when La Caravelle started in 1960, it was instantly a success thanks to the Kennedy family uh, it. patronizing it from day one. Do they keep wine there as well? I always heard about like their their cellar, and did they have special wines in the cellar of La Caravelle? Well, in 1960, um, a couple of years later, you had Petrus 61 on the, on the you know, sure. at that time it was still very young, but uh, they were building an amazing list. They had a beautiful cellar. Wow. And yeah. it just must have been kind of a golden era for like pricing of those kind of wines too. Definitely. Accessibility. Definitely. You can kind of like go through multiple vintages of Petrus and it Absolutely. would be like $20, you know. <laughs> uh, well, even less than that because add in inflation and that. Sure, right. Lunch was seven fifty. Oh my gosh. At the time, right? And a bottle of Petrus was also in that range. It's just amazing. It's crazy. Shocking the difference. <laughs> but uh, Petrus actually became well known around that time. It was... Um, uh, was promoted heavily, and then all of a sudden, this is the sixties. Yes, Got in the sixties. Yeah, yeah, because so it, it was kind of unknown in the the twenties and forties, exactly, exactly. post war era. And yeah. So okay, so you're at Le Carval, yeah. and Andre's in the kitchen, and you're. I'm actually a little bit, uh, I, I personally got involved in 88. Okay, all right. And Andre started in 84. He was partner, he's, uh, his partner was uh, Roger Fessaguet. Oh, okay. Yeah. Sure. Because Andre bought the shares of, um, Robert Maison, one of the two founders. Okay. And, uh, Roger Fessaguet was the chef at the opening, then sure. became a partner at La Caravelle. So, um, it was, it was, um, a bit challenging, uh, because, the week uh, Andre started there, there's a, a, a pan review of the New York Times. Oh, yeah. so like, welcome to La Carrière. Yeah, yeah, welcome to the restaurant. <laughs> and who is the reviewer? Um, I believe it was Marianne Boros. She okay. was an interim sure, uh, reviewer yeah, she, at that time. A couple time. times she did exactly on and off. Yeah. yeah. Um, so in a way, it's um, you know, it's a wake up call. Yeah, it gets the blood flowing. Definitely. Exactly. You're like, well. You know, this one's not going to be easy. You're exactly. going to have to get in yeah. there. Your to-do list gets a little bigger and heavier all sure. of a sudden. Yeah, I bet. So um, it was a transition period also with the Nouvelle Cuisine coming in. And yeah, what yeah. was that like? So you're seeing uh, this this lighter touch with less cream sauces coming out of mostly the south of France. Is that true? I yes, mean, yes, sort of, absolutely. And then it was being translated in New York by who? Who was kind of picking up the torch? Um, we actually hired Michael Romano. Okay, sure. Yes, Genius Work Cafe. Time. Exactly. And I would say that Michael had the toughest job of all the chefs that were at La Caravelle, transitioning from uh, Escoffier era mm-hmm. with a huge menu. Um, everything uh, uh, pl- plated in the dining room. Got it. Uh, served table side. Um, nothing in the kitchen. Wow. And he came in and he bravely uh, revamped the menu. We had to keep a couple, a few classics already, sure. but. Well, uh, I remember even like up until, you know, 
not too long ago, um, obviously before the end of the run, but there was still dishes that were being done in the finished, at least in the kitchen yes. or in the dining room. Of in the dining room, yeah. yeah. We actually, um, we kept that throughout, even though we were dubbed very old fashioned and uh, it's like cycles. Sure. All of a sudden it became, after that became trendy. It became trendy. Except again. we've been following right. the trend all the time. The and, whole and, thing. Right. Yeah, well, it's always interesting to talk to that and to have people see that. Like, Definitely. Uh, go through that whole thing of like, well, we did the same thing and at one time it was really hot and then at exactly. another time it was, you know, more of a yeah. burden. So, I mean, let's set the stage a little bit. I mean, how many seats were at La Caravelle? How many people um, are we talking about? About 120. 120. Okay. Mm-hmm. And yeah. it had that famous mural. Yes. There are actually a number of murals number. by Jean Pages, okay. who was a French uh, artist, a student of Raoul Dufy. Oh, okay. Impressionist. Yeah, the Fauvist. Exactly. Yeah. And also, uh, Jean Pages was the uh, uh, an illust- fashion illustrator for Vogue. I didn't know that. Yeah, when when there were fashion shows, he was just uh, sketching that, and you could tell in the the murals, the 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 the, the peoples look like it's a fashion sketch. I so see. It's interesting. So for me, the room kind of felt like uh, had a kind of like bistro brasserie vibe to a kind of casual vibe, not super super formal, but then. There was a level where the service and the cuisine kind of took it to another level of higher. Exactly. Is that fair? That's I mean, totally accurate and something I'm glad you picked up on that because originally La Caravelle wasn't meant to be a very formal restaurant. What made it more formal is who frequented La Caravelle. Got it. When week one you have the, the Kennedys sure. and all the, you know, the, you know, the biggest, uh, business people, artists, uh, uh designers, like the fashion. Experience, exactly. So, like the top and people are coming. Absolutely. And, and then a few months later, uh, John Kennedy becomes president. Wow, that the, must have been... That was huge for La Caravelle. Just, yeah, yeah. all of a sudden you're like, whoa, what's going exactly. on? It's the most got, powerful people on earth are exactly. in the dining room. You're catapulted up there at the limelight. And, you know, and, people are making these huge decisions that affect millions of people and they're doing it over lunch. Exactly. And La Caravelle, yeah, it was, it was crazy because La Caravelle became uh, de facto almost the dining room of, of uh, the Kennedy sure. family. And they were, I mean, she especially was so into French cuisine oh, and the translation into America and kind of like broadening and I'm more cosmopolitan sense the american palate definitely and, you know and he was kind of in the wine side but she was really in the yeah. cooking side definitely. and they were very sophisticated i mean they, they vacationed in europe fre- frequently exactly she did. was a huge francophile i mean probably the biggest francophile there was really and so, in fact very and much so and had that imprint absolutely you could see what that were in they like him in person i mean what, um, some- i did not know uh the president but sure. uh i i was lucky to meet her and talk to her she came all the way to the end you know uh-huh. uh, until beginning she, she seemed was, like she was one that would be loyal to her very her much friends. so and very low-key she very never wanted to be at the you know the most visible table she was like to be discreet and and very hello how are you very so you she know, was gracious nice. very very gracious yeah. yes very she much didn't, so. like keep herself apart from not at all not at like all. Her. she comes in and she she's still kind of seen as sort of like the pinnacle of kind of new york fashion in a way it's Definitely. kind of i feel like even today so many people kind of aspire to that model i mean yeah, they may be a little bit more brash but they right. they still have that sense especially the upper east or upper Absolutely. She had the sense of style that was very unique to her and, and uh, iconoclastic. Yeah, absolutely. And another interesting fact is when the White House was looking for a chef for the White House, they turned to La Caravelle, who then, um, uh, you know, uh, identified the gentleman by the name of René Verdon. Yeah, that's right. Right. And then he worked for two weeks at La Caravelle. They they showed him everything, all the dishes that uh, the the Kennedys Kennedys liked. They kind of prepped him for the White House. That's amazing. And then there was a a dish on the menu called Poulard Maison Blanche Mm -hmm. with a champagne sauce. Okay, so uh-huh. this is like a chicken dish for sh- <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. The early foundation of what would become something quite important. Well, exactly. And so that sort of took off. Yes. And what are some of the other, who, who else was at those tables at that time? Um, you had uh, Salvador Dali. You oh, had, wow. Oh, yeah. Wow. Actually, there was an interesting story he, with his cane. He made it, he dented one of the murals. He and did. we, instead of being upset, we were very happy. Yeah, uh, we he called, like finished it. Exactly. Yeah, the famous way. damage. Yeah, the we, famous damage. We should have asked him to sign it. But we, that with his person. And then Pavarotti, and you had all the people from Van Cleef and Arpels. Uh, sure. Big, um, EJ Hoover. So um, Hoover's in the oh, dining yeah. room next to Absolutely. Dali. Oh, interesting. Uh, next to Pavarotti. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, uh, Alice been. Tully, who decided to build Alice Tully Hall. Sure. Right there. Right across the street. Yeah. yeah. Mm. Wow. 
So, I mean, what were some of the real just memorable nights at the restaurant? Anything really just stand out? You're like, that service was special. I mean, what? Um, there's so many of them. It's, mm-hmm. it's hard to, uh, hard to pinpoint one, but I, I have a couple of uh, interesting anecdotes, like who is there at the same time. Yeah. Um, it's always when, tough to do the seating when you have such strong personalities in the oh, room. You know exactly about that, right? And you have like three people who want the same table and you're like, I'm sorry, Mr. <laughs> Ambassador. But, uh, uh, exactly. So, um, one day, uh, Ivan Busky was having lunch at La Caravelle. Yeah. And the same day who decides to come is Rudy Giuliani. Oh my gosh. That was after Ivan Bosky had served term, jail term yeah, and had yeah. gone out and unbeknownst to each other. So we were here watching and, and, you know, biting our nails thinking, hope they're not going to, you know, bump into each yeah, other. Yeah, it would exactly. be quite, the bathroom quite scary. Or something, like, Luckily you know, it didn't really happen. Wrong. So incidents like that. And I found uh, Giuliani almost like a bullion in person. Like he had this real tough guy image in the news and maybe in, when he went to work, but like he would go out and he was very much like, Hey, great to see you. Absolutely. Hey, very nice jovial, very outgoing. Yeah. yeah. Very Definitely. regular guy in terms of how he uh, interacted with the service staff and yeah. just sort of down to earth. And- Absolutely. You could tell he's someone with high energy. Yeah, yeah, he had a lot of energy, but it kind of came out in a smiling way, which wasn't the the public persona at all. True, that's you know, true. I think a lot of yeah. people painted him as more stern yeah. and kind of a warrior in the, from the from the you know the yeah. pulpit kind of thing. But he was almost battlegrounds. Kind of, yeah, <laughs> like always taking up uh, yeah. you know some kind of fight. But he actually seemed quite nice in person, at least on the you know the time that I met. All right. So, uh, what was that kind of? What changes did you see? I mean, we spoke a little bit about you know keeping the same traditions and then finding them more popular at one time or another. I mean, what were some of the things that came about in terms of the dining scene? How did it affect you? Uh, you know, what were some of the things that you saw in terms of beverages? I mean, you know, the development of different wine lists. What did you see during that period? Uh, one big point is um, the origin of the wines. Um, obviously, originally, all the wines were French. Sure in a French restaurant. And we're talking about Bordeaux, a little bit Absolutely. of Burgundy? Yeah, more Bordeaux. At the more time, Bordeaux. I would say more Bordeaux. Yeah, more okay. Bordeaux, yes. And um, when Andre came in, you know, the, the wine scene had totally changed. And uh, this is one of the things that he brought in. He said, we should start. It's, we're in a global environment now. It's not just, you know, France and French and no, even though they're wonderful wines, yeah. uh, French wines, but this is the world today. Yeah. There were so many other interesting wine regions. Do you and think like the development of air travel just like really definitely. opened it up for people? You know, suddenly you can take definitely. the Concorde, you can be in France, but then also you can travel around. Absolutely. And, you know. That and I think a lot of wines, uh, wine regions were not known previously and the, the sure. communication started about that and other wine regions uh, progressed a lot in their quality. Yeah. And well, the invention of like electricity, like getting it out to some of these areas that have never had it so they could do like temperature control, exactly. and stainless steel, allowing for easy maintenance. I mean, I think it like really opened up the whole game to regions that were maybe too hot to make wine at some point because yeah. it was too hot in the cellar. And then all of a sudden you can, you can air condition and it right. changes everything. You exactly. Know? You can conserve those wines. Yeah. Like for, especially for whites that are crisp and aromatic and, but you couldn't make them in that way in that place before because there's just no way to keep it cold, you know, that kind of thing. Exactly. So, I mean, um, you know, you have Nouvelle Cuisine coming out. What was the response? I mean, were people, um, were they into it or was it a little bit more of a challenge? I mean, was it kind of like natural wines today where you have to be like, no, trust me. Or was it more like, oh, well, I'm health conscious. I definitely want to get away from the cream. What, what were you seeing? I, I, I think it was challenging at first yeah. because of the audience. Okay. You know, our, you know, our clients were... A little bit were, traditional. Exactly. Our guests were uh, traditional and they came to La Caravelle for that. Actually. I see. So they're looking so, for the standards. Exactly. And you guys are kind of like, well, this is kind of going on in France right now. Maybe try that. Exactly. Maybe. Were there ever difficulties in translation? I mean, things that are um, given now, was it hard to like set the way for them? Um, I would say this is much later, but when we had uh, Tadashi Ono as a chef, okay. that was a big revolution. Sure. Uh, already, uh, Michael Romano had been the first non-French chef, yeah. uh, an American chef, and he did wonderful things at La Caravelle. And then a few years later, Tadashi Ono became the chef, and that was a shock. And uh, I feel like with the review process, the same thing happened to him, where he got reviewed really early by Reichel. Exactly. Like, it was almost like, there, I hear there's this guy coming in, exactly. and he's not quite here yet. And it was almost like history repeated itself, where totally. he had to like take up the the same sort of um, just 
you know, intense pressure to prove himself because there's a whole community kind of looking at him. Well, the pressure was a little less at first because we we did not know what Ruth Reichel looked like. We had no idea she came to the restaurant and she was doing a few all times. These disguises. Exactly. All of us. All of a sudden, we get a call from the New York Times. We're coming for the for photo, photo for the shoot. review. So it was totally out of the blue. Total shock. And total did shock. you, from the review, were you able to be like, oh, it was that person at that table? Now I remember. Or not really. You couldn't tell. Not so really, yeah. it was completely yep. blindsided because that's pretty rare today. Today, yes. You know where you're like, today. oh well, I mean. Exactly. We know who that is over yeah. on Table 33, exactly. that kind of thing. So, yeah. sneak attack. Absolutely. And that day she had witnessed, uh, first of all, she loved Tadashi's cuisine and his his uh, uh, approach uh, to the French cuisine. Although we always kept this, the classics, the quenelle, the Dover sole, the souffle, sure. uh, the crab caravel, those always stayed on the menu. But she loved his uh, you know, injection of, of uh, Asian influence, Asian influence, which was corresponding to modern taste at that time. Yeah, and maybe a little bit cleaner in terms of presentation. Exactly. Like something that's exactly. very popular, you know, exactly. now or in the last few years. We got like kind of, used to it, but at the time it was very, very kind you know, of. And so, what was? I mean, did you have to like a sewage personalities in the dining room? You're oh like, well, yes, this is kind of something that's hip now. Absolutely, and let's try and it out. The first thing was um, the menu. Originally, I put all the the names. Very conscientious, listed yuzu, etc., sure. shiso, and all that. And one of and our frequent like, guests was like, Frida, what is this? What's yeah. going on in here? I thought we were in a French restaurant. What's going on? And I said, Okay, let me ask you a question. Do you like what you're eating? He said, right. I love it. I yeah. said, Say no more. Right, so I went right, back right, and right. I just rewrote the menu. Right. Uh, we had the French and English. So in French, I was able to be a little more poetic and, and uh, fun. And in English, some, you know, some of the ingredients. I didn't list the you whole didn't thing, list them, just a yeah. few uh, things, That's, and it worked out beautifully. Yeah. So, I mean, was that a change that you did French and English, or was it that way all the time? No, no, it used to be only French. Only on French, only right? French. And, and then you know, Andre and them. I were saying, we're in we're in America, right? And they're not. <laughs> you know? It's not always obvious. What's yeah, going and on. also it's very intimidating. Yeah. You had people who, like a big CEO, taking out his client. And he didn't speak a word of French. He didn't. He was at a disadvantage. Didn't know what was going on. Sure, and he's you looking know. dumb. And there's exactly. big money on the line. Exactly, because <laughs> we wanted to always establish our relationship with our guests as being on their side. Yeah, we're partnered with them. Well, I see that as so much of your personality is like helping people to have a good time or kind of you know gracious hosting yeah. and i can see how you would want to help people in that way and kind of i mean like, it's important it the reality is you have a, a business dinner and with an important client you're seeking a contract if the restaurant performs well the the the, the present person from the company looks like a genius so we help that yeah. and the other way around too unfortunately sure. and he comes back exactly he, so we kind of not. have responsibility in the restaurant business on Absolutely. that end yeah no i mean you've talked about different chefs at the the high level who came in and were chef de cuisine but who uh was maybe just starting coming up the ranks that now is quite well known was there anybody in the kitchen on um, the line that later made a big splash I would say we, we, an outsider, it was uh, Cyril Renault. Okay. He came in, he was, uh, David Boulet's, uh, sous chef for three years. I see. And it was his first position uh, as a chef at uh -huh. La Caravelle, which is a pretty, uh, gutsy move. Uh, we were actually uh, looking for sous chef at the time. And then we looked at him and when we tasted like a little, uh, knee kick under the tables, like this is the this number is one the position on the number two. And uh, it was did he real. have like kind of a Breton influence back then? No. No. So no, that was that something time. that came out a little yes. later. Yes. Kind of going back to the, the absolutely. Like, childhood memories he was under 30 years old can you imagine so wow it was a big uh... so uh you did see the beverages change did you find that with kind of new plating and new ingredients mm -hmm. and new wines on the list from parts of the world that you hadn't stocked before that you were kind of coming up with new pairings that maybe are somewhat classic now i mean were you thinking about oh well let's try this with white wine or let's try that with red wine right i would say um um, an important pairing that we kind of not rebelled but went against is let's say you have foie gras yeah and with a with a sauterne like wine sure. for me it was uh, i just didn't understand that I, uh -huh. thought, I thought it's too heavy especially yeah, in the middle of the, the meal way. if you're going to have your red meat and and or, or next course with red wine sure. your palate is not really it no, jumps good. way up and exactly you take it way back down exactly in terms of the volume exactly so we prefer to have with that like a, a uh, even a, an Alsace a Pinot Blanc or Pinot Gris, you know, something very, uh, a little fruity, but not so sweet and not so strong, for instance. 
So you kind of have an interesting view, I mean, of the rise of the modern sommelier in New York. I mean, now it's very, very common. Uh, people have two, three sommeliers on the right. floor. But, I mean, what was it like in the 80s? I mean, there was probably... In the 80s, few. it was basically Andre who was uh, in charge so of the, the wine chef list. Exactly. was picking the wines. Yeah. No, and uh, Andre and... The, yeah, with the chef. But uh, we did um, bring in sommeliers to, in our last years. So you yeah. started to see this change. Absolutely. Actually, what our was first... that kind of like? People working at the table in restaurants you're going to? You kind at. of had to, to uh, introduce the sommelier and to this change, quote, unquote. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's an important change, and uh, I do think, think it was very positive. Well. I mean, do you think it's been a good thing? I definitely, that people kind definitely. Of specialized in this field. Absolutely. I mean, uh, and the beauty is that they always worked with Andre hand in hand because it's his passion. So it didn't. Um, the, our last somebody, Andrew Brisker, was totally brilliant, and he built such a beautiful wine list. It was a little heartbreaking when we closed to yeah, not have that, that handy anymore. Yeah, firsthand. Yeah. But, uh, so I mean. Talking about that for a second, I mean, it had to be a lot of emotions around the closure. Did you feel like maybe Manhattan had changed on you in a way, or did you feel like um, what you wanted to do you couldn't do anymore? I mean, what were some of the things that came up? I mean, did you feel like that people didn't understand what you were doing anymore, or what, what happened? Um, I think you touched on it when you say that Manhattan had changed on us. I would yeah. even say the whole world, the dining scene was so different from what it was. And it came to a point where we always wanted to, we were conscious about the necessity necessity of keeping uh, relevant, to being relevant. Yeah. So meaning you update a certain a number of elements, but there's only so much you can do without altering your, the your, whole your, your exactly yeah. your DNA. Yeah. So when we came to that point, um, and seeing how much the world had changed, and we just couldn't adapt more than what we did. Right. We just, I mean, our big thing when we closed was, it's time. Yeah. It's time. But I feel like a lot of people really kind of miss it. There's, a, They harken back to yes. this era of these restaurants, I, and it was almost kind of like a few restaurants closed right around the same exactly, time. Exactly. Where it felt like something was really changing, and it felt like people weren't necessarily ready for it. Do you yeah. feel like when people talk to you, they, they have a certain nostalgia for those uh, every days day. and they kind of wish every day. they could go back now? Absolutely. Every day I hear, we miss your restaurant. And I feel helpless because I can't do anything about that. Now. Right. But, but I mean, you know, you're still you and you're still right. around and you're on the scene and everybody loves you. And there's a lot of goodwill towards towards you, I think, especially, but also just because you're kind of like a charming person. And But Thank it's you. kind of amazing that, <laughs> I mean, you are a charming person, not kind Thank of. <laughs> um, but it's it's kind of amazing how there's a there's a shift, and maybe it's only for a few years, but it can really have an impact on what's available on the market. And then a few years later, people are like, oh, how did we lose that one? Yeah. You know? I would say what the big turning point for us was September 11. Mm-hmm. Uh, I believe there was a fundamental change in society. Sure. People and were looking for something different coming out. They wanted something more familiar and more yeah. less formal. The neighborhood restaurant exactly. really took off during exactly. that time. The like comfort. Like the corner bistro. Where, exactly. Because I, I saw that it majorly affected my own life, where we went from like selling Petrus to selling Fiano d'Avellino. It was exactly. like people wanted something comfortable, a lower price point, exactly. no fancy. Nobody wanted to be luxurious. Nobody wanted to draw airs exactly. to themselves. It was seen as very poor taste to yeah. like spend a lot of money ostentatiously exactly. at that moment. I think mm -hmm. everyone was, there was a lot of value on personal connection. And it, it was kind of like, if you were a neighborhood place, you didn't even have to be like spectacular. You just had to be a neighborhood place. Exactly. Like the vibe mattered more than anything. Be comforting and reassuring. Yeah, exactly. And people know, so. really wanted that, which isn't necessarily like a bad thing. It's just, it played against the development I mean, of kind of, like sophisticated cuisine. It, it changed. It changed the course of, of fine dining. I yeah. mean, I always say that fine dining is has never disappeared. Sure. And the love for it either. Yeah. What has changed is the level of formality. That is. So it's really more of a front of the house service thing, which you kind of witnessed, say, especially during that time. I mean, this one element is uh, the 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 dress code. Yeah. 
um, that was difficult. It was getting increasingly difficult. You know what I find around that is it's like you can't win because there's the old school clientele who are like, why is this person not wearing a jacket? Exactly. And they're pissed. And then you're turning away people who are, are pissed that they can't get in. Exactly. They're not. So it's like it's a very delicate matter. Exactly. There's several things like that, I think, with the cultural shift in fine dining where it's Absolutely. like one side really feels that you're you're messing up and the other side really feels like you're messing up and it's hard to really draw it's the very fine hard line. because you, you're actually being penalized for something that's not your fault right it's, it's just that uh, the biggest reason you know is that when people most of our clients would come in very well dressed and because they were going out it was a you know yeah. a celebration and that's still true in manhattan people right. like to put it on you and know, they felt up. that some of their experience was was robbed yeah. from them or demeaned to a certain extent when they saw somebody coming in very very casually dressed right like they hadn't taken the time yeah it was kind of an insult but here's america's like changing rock and roll is hip you know exactly. frank zappa is meeting exactly. with the pope and he's not wearing and, a tie no and you have billionaires who come in t-shirt and and, and jeans sure. too yeah like, tech millionaires and exactly. the 90s. It was exactly. like if you wore a suit and you were in Silicon Valley, man, exactly. you didn't understand what was going on. So yeah. uh, we had that sign at the entrance: "Jacket and tie required." You did, and I always joked: one day somebody's going to show up with just a jacket and a tie, right, and we're going right, to have right. to let him in. Yeah, that's so, right. <laughs> luckily, kind of too bad that didn't happen because that would have been. <laughs> I great know, <laughs> right? <laughs> no, I mean, there's a there was this. Uh, there was a story about a four-star restaurant in Manhattan where an Italian winemaker of, of some repute, but who's also known to go his own way, uh, showed up. And they, they said, uh, you know, with these pants that you're wearing, we really can't see you. They're really brightly colored, and it's kind of obscene. And he said, oh, it's the pants. You can't see me with the pants. And they were like, yeah, we can't see you with the pants. So he goes outside <laughs> onto the street, takes the pants off, wears his skivvies, throws the pants over his arm, and walks in and says, well, you have to seat me now. And they did. They sat him. And they were like, okay. I mean, you know, I guess, you know, you've called our bluff. And so they did seat him. But, you know, obviously when he's sitting at the table, you can't see that. So I think actually they sat him really fast because they were like, okay, let's get this guy to a table so that nobody can see that he's not wearing pants, you know. Uh, you know, and I remember when I worked in Boston, there was the old Blue Bloods and they would wear the blazers. But then they would wear like um, Bermuda shorts. Like, because they wanted to go casual, and so, but you couldn't tell sitting at the table. That was a very classic, like, old Boston thing to do, was to wear, like, the kind of blue blazer with the gold buttons, double-breasted, but then, like, pink shorts, you know? It was, it was, nobody would, if you haven't seen it, it doesn't make any sense. It would work in Bermuda Island. Yeah, well, it definitely works in Palm Beach and that kind of thing, where, like, there's the pastel love, everybody wants pastel, but, yeah, yeah, it was kind of like a a blue blood uh, rebellion. So... (laughs) Um, you know, post Le Caravelle's closing, uh, you know, I think a lot of people maybe would have just kind of been like, uh, restaurant industry, I have some bad associations that really hurt a lot to close a restaurant. I miss everybody, but I don't know if I can still engage with them. doesn't seem to be the case at all with you. You know, you're out, everybody sees you. And in fact, I, one of the things that I think you're really successful at is like kind of friendship marketing. Like you get in there and you become a part of the family of the restaurant. And then that also helps uh, development of a brand, which I think is really important. I mean, just from the outsider, I think it's so hard for someone to to break in with a small brand into a luxury category like champagne. Here you are, everyone has your champagne on the list, which is La Caravelle, kind of a, you know, well, it's true. I mean, everybody in Manhattan knows this wine or pours it or has it on the list, you know, and it's not the easiest category to break into champagne because it is dominated by huge brands that have tons of marketing resources. And here you're like one person and you get out there and you have pours at four-star restaurants. I mean, what 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 kept you in the game? You know, why did you decide to get back in on the restaurant side and really get reengage in this new format? Actually, I never really wanted to leave the restaurant world because yeah. it was my world. Yeah, that's your place. Exactly, and you know so many people. In that exactly, and and I and I love these relationships. And I, I was telling Andre the other day, I feel like I have now an additional new family. Yeah, with all the sommelier community, the wine community. Um, and they treat I really you with enjoy a lot of respect. I think, yeah, thank the you. But I really enjoy enjoy being you know with with you all. And um, well, not me personally, but the other people I know. I, I, uh, yes, you personally too. <laughs> oh, <thanks. laughs> no, it's uh, uh, so between the love of the restaurant business and 
the sense of I belong there. Yeah. As well as my passion for for champagne. And, yeah. So and why champagne? I mean, you travel to the area. You just love to drink. I mean, it. we what you know we the, had uh, we started our our La Caravelle Champagne back when the restaurant was open that's in '97. Right. Yeah. yeah. So uh, back then it was uh, there was a long tradition in. You Andre. had your own label at the we restaurant. We did exactly. Was that common at that time, or was that kind of like a new thing where people um, were like, oh, I'm gonna have my a, own? It was an old thing that became new again. New again. Yeah. And when was that like? That was in '97. It was. Uh, obviously at the time the champagne was only served at the restaurant yeah. but then at some point our, our guests were saying well, why can't we buy this champagne elsewhere so yeah. uh, Morel's uh, decided to carry it and it. so that was went on for a few years then we had our cognac uh, Grand Fin and, and a Fin Champagne, uh, which was really wonderful we have uh, the Listrac also, a Bordeaux sure so and, you did. Uh, you had a range of things. We did. Yeah, I didn't we know did. that. Yeah. So there, and, you could have gone into like the Bordeaux business, but probably a little more difficult with the negotiations. Yeah, a little more difficult. And actually, there's a, a tradition in Andre's family. Um, they used to, you know, in, when in Paris, they used to go to La Halle and his his uh, father used to have, you know, uh, blend proprietary wines. And so oh, there's okay. a lot of history there. So even there. as a kid, and, he was exactly. Like, and through his godmother, they were connected uh, to um, Sir Voltner from uh, La Mission oh, Brion sure. and all that. So it was already kind of in the blood. Yeah, in the blood. <laughs> so, um, you know, it was, it was very special to do that. And it was very well received. I feel um, like, especially speaking of NZ blood, like the French community is so supportive of what you're doing. Very feel much feel like so, very yeah. much like the restaurant, but also out of the restaurant, like the expatriate French community or diplomatic corps. It seems like they've really embraced not just the brand, but you as a person. Is that fair to say? Uh, yeah, I would say I was, you know, very lucky to get a lot of support. Although it wasn't easy at the beginning. Sure. Well, it never um, is. You know. The first time I remember, the first time after the restaurant closed, yeah. um, we were we, we thought everything was going to stop. You know? Yeah. And then, well, for a lot of people, it does. Yeah. And that's, I think that's the inspiring thing about you is you kind of like picked it back up and you got back in there. Exactly. So, you know, some of our friends were saying, well, with the champagne, you could very well do it without the restaurant. So made me think, and then I sort of uh, uh, investigated a little bit. And the first person I had talked to was uh, Alain Ducasse. And oh, I said, okay. uh, sure, he guy. was about to open Adour, you know, in sure. New York. And I said, Alain, can I ask you something? And he said, whatever yeah. you like. So I said, would you, uh, your restaurant carry La Caravelle Champagne? The first question he's asked me is, are you reopening a restaurant called La Caravelle? I yeah, said, well, that's a good uh, question to ask. That, yeah. that, you know, that was an important point. I that's said, probably no. why he's a smart uh, and well-respected chef is he's thinking ahead of the game. <laughs> Exactly. So I said, no, that's not, yeah. not the intention. He said, done. Go see the sommelier. If he likes it, you're in. That's it. And that gave me, you know, great uh, encouragement. And it also helped open doors. Yeah, I bet. Because you, know, you were like, well, it's on it, Ducasse's kind of, list. Exactly. And so that's, that's a yeah. like a seal of approval right kind of yeah, thing. Exactly. So. And so tell us a little bit about the champagne. I mean, you have a couple. There's a rosé. There's Blanc de Blanc. Uh, yeah. uh, who's and, making it? And Where the are you brut, getting it? Yeah. Uh, it's made by a house in Epernay uh, called okay. the Castellan, okay. which is part of the Laurent Perrier group. Got it. And in fact, uh, Michel Fauconnet, the winemaker of, of Laurent Perrier, oversees all the... Uh, it's his, his basically, uh, he's the one that oversees all the, the balance for the whole group, which also, uh, uh, includes uh, Salon, Salon et cetera. Yeah. Sure, Delmont. Exactly. So, Delmont. you know, Laurent Perrier is a house that's really famous for rosé, but also Blanc de Blanc. Do you feel like the styles have really carried over? Do you feel like it's a similar style that you might find in some of the Laurent Perrier brands that you would find in Le Caravelle, or is it completely different? Um, I was, we just came from, uh, Champagne two weeks ago. Actually. You did, it was, you it was it wonderful to, to revisit. Uh, um, there is definitely a style, but it's, each one has its own uh, identity, which is beautiful. Okay. Yeah. I would say, uh, we were very, for us, what was very important is that the Champagne is approachable in okay. more than one way. Sure. And that you, you don't need like 10 tasting note explanations to, to figure out if you liked it or not. Uh-huh. It so had to be like, instant you like it can be your style or not that's a different story but uh, that was for us very important and that carry over the pricing model i feel like it's definitely affordable definitely yeah we, we we because it's important when you're breaking out as you said in, in a very very a competitive be closed kind of circle yeah uh, market to to be competitive um so we've even had people tell us your prices are too low and I said you know what 
I'd rather, if rather you want to pay it. me more, it's exactly. fine, but we're going to charge this We make it optional. Else. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, I'd rather work on thinner margins, but establish yourself. Well, and are you mostly selling this in the Manhattan market, or is it into other areas of the United States? Um, at the moment, it's uh, New York, and uh, we also have, uh, starting in New Jersey. You are, okay. We're in Vegas, in a you know, oh, okay. very nice selection of places. Well, there's certainly some high-end yeah. French restaurants yeah. in Vegas that might have an interest have in uh, Joël Robuchon in both restaurants. I've heard of him, uh, sure. Yes, uh, and uh, mix Alain Ducasse, even Rails, which is fun. Oh, wow. Uh, Rick yeah. Moonen. Does that mean I can hit you up for a table sometime here in the Manhattan location? I can try. Yeah, 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 yeah. Good person to know. <laughs> so. so what's next in the coming year? I mean, what are you thinking about? Are you going to expand the case production? What is the case I production? Think, um, well, we we started very little. I mean, you have to plan, obviously, yeah. uh, all that. You can't just push a button. I need that much uh, uh, since I was the only one who was selling it, you know, we were limited also on this end, so we didn't sure. want to. <clears throat> excuse me. Produce so much. Exactly. So first started with around 500 cases a year, and now now we're about. So it really, is very small scale. It is. It is very small scale. There was also just one market at the Got beginning. It. Yeah, mm -hmm. New York. Now that it's starting also in Massachusetts, uh, soon I hope in D.C. in Chicago, so Illinois. So um, we're getting too close to. 850 uh, cases a year. So little by little, it's it's growth. And these are all like non-vintage champagnes, All non-vintage, right? yeah. So there's well, an ability to kind of blend. Exactly. So there's not radical shifts from year no, to year. No, no. And uh, we also uh, were working on a tête de cuvée, so... What well, do you like in a champagne? I mean, when you taste champagne, what are some of the things that draw you to one champagne and to another? Are you looking for more kind of fine froth? Do you like it a little drier, a little rounder? Um, I really like balance in, uh -huh. in, in, sure. in champagne and in everything in general. Try to yeah. find that. Uh, having said that, some days you'll be in the mood for a little more acidity. Uh -huh. uh, I, I, I find that I like acidity more and more as a, I don't know if an advance in age or what. <laughs> uh -huh. Well, I like acidity uh, a lot. Because yeah. I think it's really the, the point that adds relief to any tasting um, uh, pattern. Kind of cuts through so exactly. much, whether it's other wines or exactly. food or and the dosage is exactly like, oh, let me drink some of this. Yeah. <laughs> lighten up the atmosphere. Name no names, but yeah. so uh, that definitely the 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 first feel you get when you get the first mouthful of champagne is just the first sip is it's just funny for how me. It can change your whole palate in a totally, second. Totally, totally. Not a lot of wines can really totally. do that. It's I, almost like the physiology exactly. And I typically I'm not crazy about high, uh, you know. Highly sweet. Uh, uh -huh. so you like a little drier. I like a little drier. Yeah, it's more flexible that way. And uh, so, as long as the whole uh, thing lets the fruit come out mm -hmm. at the mm -hmm. end of the day, so that's the most important thing. Exactly. Because sometimes they're so dry, it's like really. Thin, it's hard. You know, lean. You and know. when you taste a lot, your teeth hurt. So that's, that's right. You know. <laughs> yeah, that's always a good sign that maybe it's a little too dry. You're starting <laughs> exactly. to get teeth Rita, tell us a little bit. I mean, I see you frequently on Twitter, using a little bit of social media, uh, kind of getting out there, getting the word across, engaging people in a personal level, um, which I think is, you know, almost kind of part of your brand, but so much a part of your persona and people really respond to it. And there's a sense that you're almost everywhere at once because, uh -oh. you know, <laughs> I see you at this restaurant, but I read about it on Twitter. And then, you know, I feel like I follow your life. I feel like you follow my life. You know what's going on with me even though we don't see each other as much as I'd like. I mean, what uh, led you to kind of embrace some of the technology that, you know, a lot of times people sort of take uh, a look at as maybe um, standing in the way of relationships, but you've used them to forge relationships. What, what made you do Definitely. that? Definitely. I'm, I'm very... Um fond of, of social media. Actually, one of my sons um, uh, introduced me to that. Uh, his stuff. That. That's his. That's what he does. He's a consultant. And he actually found my Twitter name, Caravel Champ, which I, I wouldn't have found myself. <laughs> I like the double entendre. But the social media for me is a, a wonderful forum for sharing information, yeah. meaning you're learning also. You're not, you're not only giving information that you found, but you learn a lot. And then the interaction with people. Mm -hmm. Some days I feel like it's a giant party going yeah. on. Me too. Yeah. It's so like, much fun. Jump in the pool. Exactly. You know? And provided you only say what people, what you want people to know, yeah. then the privacy is, is, is okay. But uh, Yeah, and, sometimes I feel like you really do have to kind of have a little bit of self-editing. Exactly. Share, You're you know. wonderful on social media. I like your wit. You yeah, have your own you know, style and voice. What I find is if I'm the least bit cynical, people get really upset. Like yes. I get a lot. If, if, if I think people have different expectations for different feeds. 
and someone might seek out a guy who's a little bit down or a little bit uh, skeptical, right. but they don't expect that from me. And if I do it at all, I find like I get a lot of negative push on that. So I'm always interested in that because, you know, uh, everybody's a person, but if you say certain things are received better than others, I find, I think people yeah. have expectations that maybe are different than what they would expect in person. I, I agree with you. I, I mean, uh, if I'm asked to write something or if I'm asked to communicate in any way, I leave out the negative. Yeah. Only tell about it later if you want to learn something from sure, it. Sure, make it a lot. But lesson. otherwise, um, there are people whose character it is to do that, and it's fine because you expect them, as you say, to say that. But if you don't, I think just there's so much to say on the positive side oh, yeah, and no enriching side yeah. and fun. And actually, I find that if you take a positive approach to things, it can it leads to more of a positive approach. Absolutely. Whereas if you take a negative approach, it leads Absolutely. to more of a negative approach. So if you think about like, what could I say that's nice about this? Well, then that leads to the next thing. Exactly. That leads to the next thing. It's, you know, it's a whole way of looking at it, but it's interesting that people kind of subscribe to certain feeds or not based on that. Cause I, I find that that's actually kind of the dividing line more than like, uh, socioeconomic class more than like, um, you know, where you live, mm-hmm. uh, more than sexual preference, you know, things that really like break up people in real life. It's true. Yeah. You know, it's kind of like just your approach to is the glass half full or half empty is kind of like where people choose to follow you or not. Exactly. Whereas in every other part of your life, that doesn't have a lot to do with it directly. Totally. You know what I mean? Absolutely. And I find that um, let's not underestimate the power of humor. Yeah. What humor can do is just... Cut through everything. Uh, also, as you say, staying within the non-cynical uh, realm is fun. And, I mean, and it's you, you get people's attention with that. Degree. Yeah. I mean, people want to feel better. Exactly. So, you know, but I, you have such a kind of... Um, when I see yours, there's like a joie de vie about it that yeah. maybe is why I'm even speaking about that kind of positive vibe that you bring, mm-hmm. um, where I feel like it, it's all of a piece, like the champagne and the sense of having a good time and, you know, the restaurant world that you're a part of and that you're really embraced by and that you embrace and you kind of provide an entree for different levels of generations. People can see it however they come to it. Um, there's a sense of fun and lightness about what your life is that's shared on Twitter that I think is attractive and it kind of like builds the brand in a way. Thank you. It's about, I think uh, it's about finding your own voice that defines you and, and uh, people, when they meet you, they say, she's like what she writes about. Well, I think you are. And I think you've succeeded. And also I think it's important when you're doing social media to not um, only toot your own horn. Yeah. It's no fun when it's just a promo tool. People it's get really boring. Tired of that. Yeah. That's if a, I if I taste a delicious champagne, I have no qualms about writing about it. Why? Because I love yeah. champagne as exactly. a whole or wine. I'm not just gonna talk about like I have a champagne and I feel like that builds trust. People are like, Well, he's not just trying to sell us. Exactly. He's trying to tell us about something exactly. that matters. And it's the reality. I mean yeah. at least for me. Sure, no doubt. <laughs> What would you recommend to someone who uh, was just getting into the restaurant business? So, you know, you saw it for a number of years. You saw the good times. You saw the bad times. Uh, you saw, you know, some adversity with uh, critic ratings that you had to overcome. You know, if you were saying to someone today, you know, here's what I kind of wish I'd known earlier or here's the lessons that I learned after all those years of hard work, what would you say to that person who wanted to start their own restaurant or get involved in restaurants in general? Um, I would say you have to balance out between having your vision and what you want to do, how you want to express yourself with the reality of who your, your, your guests will be. What you have to always keep your finger on the pulse of what's going on, people's reactions. Uh, it's very important because it's your feedback. And I mean, at the end of the day, that's what marketing is all about. It's uh-huh. about offering something that the public will embrace. Sure. So it can't just be like you with your own. Exactly. Vision. Unless you want to be in a niche category and the then empty you can just do that. Exactly. And, and then go out and taste and talk to people. The restaurant industry is extremely supportive of each other. Yeah. I of think the, so. It's own member. Very much so. Okay. Very, very much so. And what do you see is like, what's the, the role of French cuisine in Manhattan today? I mean, what's happening? What, what do you see when you go and visit these different chefs that you know so well? What do you, what's the current trend or, you know, would you say it's more pan regional now? Would you say it's more regional? What kind of flavors are you seeing on the plate? Are you seeing new approaches? Um, I think, uh, French cuisine has become more global and more, uh, definitely more regional in a way, but also regional of, Using the local ingredients. Yeah, I've and, seen that a lot. Right, like the the foraging movement has kind exactly. of come in a little bit in the way that 
maybe eight years ago, there was so much emphasis on the the Spanish influence on on yes. French cuisine, where it was like El Bulli and some of the things going on in Barcelona were really playing out on the on in French kitchens in terms of foams or different kinds of sauces, emulsions. And now I feel like um, like Noma is kind of influencing people, and people are doing more kind of like rustic presentations. A little Definitely, bit. yeah. Like the, the, the rustic chic, like, which is uh, seems to be um, you know a, um, a trend that people embrace mm -hmm. well. I mean, interesting examples of French cuisine. We're sitting in one of the amazing examples sure, is Boulou Sud. I mean, Daniel is brilliantly. Uh, he knows um, what he's doing. I think. Oh my he's gosh! Definitely, sharp, definitely. Sharp guy. Yeah. I mean, to have three operations um, smack next to each other yeah. and not cannibalize each other—that's yeah. brilliant. Well, that's he, brilliant. I think he's going for like the Pentagon. Like pretty soon, it's going to be like you know. <laughs> well, you know, he took his time in growing, but he did it the smart way. Yeah, really and it, it was that. always a vision. I think I saw the original plans, and it was always like this. Well, when we expand into there, right. you know, it's really the the amazing thing about Danielle. One of the amazing things besides having a great palate, great vision, amazingly charismatic is that he dreams big and he achieves he it. It's not just like a isolated yeah. dream. Like he really pushes people to like, let's do more. You exactly. Know, like in, in, you catering know, or absolutely. books or, you know, let's, and let's young do people, it. you know, more established people. Look at DBGB is a great example. Too. Yeah. Yeah. He's willing to kind of embrace change. Up, absolutely. You know, he knows times. how to translate his vision into, you know, to, to reach out to different uh, segments of, of the market. And that's brilliant. But, you know, at the other end of the, the French um, landscape in Manhattan today, there's La Grande Wii, which really hasn't changed much at all, has stayed with the same vision, and I feel like it's being more embraced than than certainly in a while. I mean, I think Definitely. it was a good period for them in the, say, late 80s. I remember it was kind of a, you know, a noted place to go. But right. now I feel like people are really sort of returning, looking for something that hasn't changed too much. Exactly. That's kind of a a throwback, if you will, or just they've kept to their same style. I mean, a lot of the players in that same category are, are gone. So sure. um, La Grenouille is a beautiful restaurant. And I think when you go there, it's such a beautiful experience uh, on all levels. So there's That's a level where like there's really kind of um, parallel trends and what what France exactly. is offering Manhattan at this time. Do you think that's fair? Absolutely, I think so. You also have wonderful American chefs who are, you know, who Thomas are Keller. Names to watch, Thomas I mean, Keller. But at the level where they haven't quite broken through yet, have you met some people that really think like, boy, I'm going to keep my eye on that guy because he's going to like blow up one day, or he has such talent? Who's who are you thinking about? Um, I would say uh, there's um, George Mendes. Even yeah, he's Portuguese, sure. but with the French, you could tell he has a French he's background. Got the well, he worked at Tocqueville all those years. But exactly. Yeah. I think he's extremely talented. The minute I tasted his food, I was like, oh, you know. And I think a lot day, of people have that response. Oh, yeah, you know? absolutely. He kind of draws. And then uh, our former chef uh, Cyril Renault uh, uh, reopened La Canal. He's very sure. talented. Mm -hmm. I think he's dying to recreate uh, La Fleur de Sel a little bit. Um, yeah, so I think he kind of suffered again from that sort of yes, economic yes. downturn. You know, I feel like the two events that have most shaped the restaurant landscape in Manhattan are September 11th and then the Bernie Madoff situation where so much just energy got sapped out in a moment. Absolutely. And like the whole landscape sort of yeah. changed and after those those moments. And Absolutely. Kind of, you know, you can have your own vision, but you can't fight the global situation you know what i mean in terms of a restaurant tour do you agree with that that was very hard that and and uh, when lehman brothers uh sure etc yeah, and I at that, that time was it was it was people. cataclysmic and it was also um people didn't want even those who still had a lot of money didn't want to show that show, show that, that. so that was also another limitation on, on restaurants especially you know? after the last financial crisis i felt like it was kind of like there, there was anger too yeah. at, at people with money, so there was like a level where people didn't want to like exactly. broadcast that. They would go shop, you know, from the big brands, and I'd like an unmarked bag. An please. unmarked bag. Yeah. I so, remember that time. Yeah, the brown yeah. paper bag. But you know, and you like, you see it in restaurants also at that time, uh, wine sales. You know, things really changed. Exactly. Yeah. Which was, I mean, what I saw in that was that people became much more experimental and much more open to like finding new things and more regional wines and like the rise of Italian regionality really showed up where people were trying things from areas that weren't Tuscany. Exactly. Um, really sort of, you know, the embrace of the Loire Valley in France really uh, has happened. Jura wines. Yeah, like Jura, that. people being comfortable drinking Beaujolais when before it was kind of poo-pooed not too long ago, you know, in terms of crew Beaujolais that kind yeah. of thing 
I've really, you know, in a way, it's really broadened people's horizons. Definitely. Um, you know, and it really comes from a financial change, I think, for a lot for a lot of yeah. people. And also, for there was a, I'm observing a big trend, which has worked wonderful for for us with the La Caravelle Champagne, is that um, the the big brands are wonderful and they have good quality and the established record. But people wanted to discover something. Yeah, I think I find that uh, New Yorkers mostly they like to discover something. Yeah, I think and that's you're probably right. the way to make it in New York is Especially to be if discovered. It seems like a secret at first. Exactly. You know? Exactly. You know what I saw was like. In the late 90s, people wanted to have the greatest experience. Everyone was like, I want the top, the best, the very finest. And then what happened more recently is that people wanted a unique experience. And those two things weren't always translated the same way. So it was like the greatest was often kind of like a herd mentality because people uh, needed the reaffirmation of other people to say that this was the top, this right. was the pinnacle, and that, that sense that they'd hit it. Um, but unique, it's almost like you go away from the herd mentality. So you're looking for things that are obscure, you know, rise of the giraffe for me. In a way, it's kind of the same thing. You're looking for a distinctive experience, but in one sense, they needed so much more kind of um, affirmation. And in another, they needed a sense that they were going away from the herd. Right. You know what I, I mean? mean, it's about uh, at some point, so people are motivated by the, the status, showing their yeah. status. I mean, in and both this is ways, evolving. it's a status Absolutely. thing. Absolutely. Yeah, know, it is. It's like, oh, it I'm is. not like you, became exactly. the new status symbol, whereas before it was like, well... Uh, exactly. You know. It's like uh, I, I used to be a follower. Now I'm telling people what I discover, and yeah, I have exactly. the courage of yeah, saying I love something that's not known. And there was more kind of like self-publishing. Like you could just hit like True. click, and then True. you were out there on the internet, and you could Definitely. write your thing. And so there was like more ability for individuals to kind of shape the discussion. You didn't have to filter it through editorial. Boards. Absolutely, you feel like that's definitely lines are so different than they used to be. Not that long ago, totally, you know, totally. If, so where do you find champagne having a role in those wine lists? Are people still looking for the classics? I, it seems to me like champagne sales are strong, even in a time when it's not necessarily like luxurious in terms of financial yes, markets. I would say um, these are um, two of my big quests. One, to show that uh, you don't need a special occasion or a lot of money to drink champagne. Yeah, kind of making it a wine. Exactly. It's to, a wine. At the end of yeah. the day, it is, it is part of the wine category. Uh, and yes, it has, has a little more panache in that uh, it's a celebrate celebratory drink, but on the other hand, uh, nothing beats you know. In the, at the end of the day, and you're like you need a little pick me up, just a, a glass of champagne at the right temperature. Or the beginning of the day. You know? Or the beginning <laughs> of the day. Why not? <laughs> I like that. <laughs> and also to show how champagne is so versatile, it goes with so many things. Yeah, the bandwidth is really broad. Absolutely, you can do all kinds of stuff. Absolutely, because yeah. you know, in the older days, the our elders uh, weren't exposed to as many um, cuisine as we are now. Sure, you have to Flavors. deal with spicy, you have to deal with unami, Absolutely. you have to deal with Absolutely. Uh, pork, you have to deal with vegetables. Definitely. You know, things I mean, that were anybody who would have said with a straight face, I'm, I'm having a rosé champagne with a burger, you know, you were like, go look, go study your basics and come back. Yeah, exactly. no, it's And it really works. Do you feel like, I mean, with the, I feel like, especially you see with French cuisine, the move away from carbohydrates and the move away from cream sauces has really changed the kind of wines that people are drinking. So people kind of lighten up the wines too. People look for more acidity because they're not dealing Definitely. with the heavy carbs as much anymore because there's more of that emphasis on the vegetables right. and that kind of thing. You know? Definitely, I would say. And, and as you know, you can pair a wine successfully two ways. Either it's a harmony uh, pairing sure. or it's a contrast. contrast Sometimes yeah. you need, when you're eating fatty foods, you need that little cut, cut with the acidity and the, and the bubbles to do a beautiful job at that. Do you feel like contrast pairings have really come up? I feel like a lot of times people are looking for contrast pairings now in terms of sommeliers, yes. Yes. you know, we're going to hit this big flavor with this other, exactly. you, you know, quite distinctive flavor, and they're going to kind of come at each other. Exactly. Not necessarily round with round, but like one's going to have the cut and the other's going to be rich. Exactly. Know? No, I, I would say definitely. It's I also started, a little shock value, right? It's a little right? different. Yeah. You know, there was a sense that like you were going to pair rich and broad with, you know, rich, you know. <gasps> well, what's, pretty... what shape does that put you in afterwards? That's yeah, exactly. It can be tough. Well, you know, also as wines got higher and higher and alcohol with global warming and stuff, I felt like that, that could only go so far. Yeah. You know what I mean? And people had to like rethink after Definitely. a while because it was like people were stumbling away from the table and stuff. 
So what would you say to somebody who's like getting involved in wine import now? I feel like so many people in the last 20 years have decided, ah, I'm going to throw my hat in the wine import game. Some of them quite young. Sometimes you see importers in their, you know, late 20s, early 30s in the New York market. I mean, so many people I think are inspired yeah. by Kermit Lynch or, you know, maybe Robert Chatterton or Rosenthal where they start out and they say, oh, I'm going to import. You have some experience with that in terms of, you know, breaking into a very competitive market, bringing things in direct. If you had some advice to give to someone who was like, oh, I'm thinking about bringing over wines from Europe, what would you say to those young people? Um, I would say do it gradually, yeah. first of all, uh, because you need the means to, to uh, support that. And it's not an instant money-making situation. Got it. Um, you can't be motivated by you know um, instant money-making. Sure. That's for sure. You need patience. And then be flexible. See that uh, you know one way of doing things doesn't work. Well, time to adjust. Uh, seek your peers' advice. And um, something that's important, too, is taste, 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 so that you know what you're bringing vis-a-vis -vis what's out there, also with what people are looking for. Gotcha. So, um, you know, kind of like what you said about restaurants, you have to respond to what actually people you want. Do. You, you can't do. just, like, do your own thing. Like, yeah. it can't just be you. Not because you love you. something, it's going to be, it's going to be successful. Commercial success. Right. Sure. Yeah. It's just got to be a little utility, too. We hope it happens, but... <laughs> right, right, right. You'd like to see... So, who are, I mean, who or what are some of the things in the Manhattan scene that really inspire you? I mean, I feel like you really know the players, you know the institutions. Um, are there things, I mean, you decided to make this your home and you could have gone somewhere else. You could have, you know, the restaurant closed. You're no longer tied to New York. You could have done a lot of things. You could have gone to Europe. Here you are. I mean, what is it about this place that speaks to you? Who are some of the people that really stood out and been like, boy, I'm, I'm glad I'm around that guy a lot? Um... We felt home at home in America, I would say almost since day one, mm -hmm. actually since before we moved here. And you always have ups and downs in life. Sure. No uh, but I, I never, ever, ever had the inkling to say, I got to get out of here. Yeah. Never. It always felt like home. Since, Even since in the 1980. Times. Absolutely. And you've seen that. I'm sure that the town changed tremendously. Oh. What do you think about those changes? I mean... Um, I think um, we're much more open to the world, and I think uh, it's about, I feel that the importance of the community has grown a lot. Okay. The, the need for it, because let's say when this uh, big event happening, like uh, September 11, sure. people bend together. Mm -hmm. There's caring and there's support, and you don't necessarily see that a lot elsewhere. Got it. I mean, yeah. I've lived in Paris, I've lived in Geneva. Beirut too long ago to remember really, but uh, I think people bend together in a way here that, and then America is the land of, um, you know, making yourself uh, find other ways. You want to make it work. Yeah. You have opportunities and people will help you. Yeah. It's no, just a few it, people yeah. who got together said we have the same, common. Uh, exactly, things we, in we common, same yearnings, uh, same uh challenges and we're trying to work together on that and there's a camaraderie that's really i don't know that it exists in a lot of other industries because when people talk about like the rat race you know and they think about new york i think a lot of times people think it's an individual town but really it's no, not no, i think it's actually probably hurtful to look at it that way you know it's I like agree. you have to do, you have to yeah. get out there a little bit and, and but that cool. doesn't mean i mean you're, you're yourself uh, each person has their own identity sure. and the, their own makeup but um um and, and you can help each other, which is beautiful. So if you were to look at someone and say, oh, well, you know, you've just moved to New York. What are some of the things that you would do in an ideal day? I mean, where do you go to visit? Which museums or, you know, what is it that's something you would say, boy, that's something I love about New York. I didn't know necessarily when I first moved here, but this is something I'm super into. It really, in, you know, refills my tank. What, what, what do you love about New York? Um, it depends on the day. Some days it'll just stay home and do nothing. Yeah, <laughs> right. Well, Other than that's that. That's my whole life. That's not New York. <laughs> um, I would say on, on yesterday I was in Central Park. Yeah. The trees are unbelievable. Oh, it's incredible how it's in bloom they amazing. are. It's amazing. It's like they come out to greet you now. Yep. Take your allergy pill and go. Right, right. <laughs> um, I hold my nose. I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> that too. <laughs> 
the different neighborhoods, like you feel like tra you're traveling to different countries almost. And that's mm -hmm. so enjoyable because you don't need a visa. You don't need the security check at the line. Uh, you just, you're right, right. <laughs> no passports. <laughs> that has become an important motivation. Sure. Um, and um, I would say I love uh, the Lower East Side. I think there's a vibrancy there. There really is. Yeah. So you can much. feel it. Any it's, time of day almost. You know? uh, absolutely. And at night, there's no room on the sidewalks. Right. It's, it's crazy. Yeah, you're right. Um, Soho is, is beautiful too. Although I find that Soho has pockets. Sure. Um, so it's a little bit more commercialized. Than exactly. Used to be. But the little stores, the little the boutiques, uh, you know, are, exactly. Yeah. Especially you know, like Nolita part, like exactly. right on that border, you know. Exactly. And rediscovering Harlem. That, that's a good point. That's, uh, I mean, Harlem is, uh, everybody thinks downtown, downtown, but sure. Harlem is becoming really, really cool. We took a bicycle ride up there and, and there was a level of embrace from the local clientele. Fantastic. I mean, local people who live there and they were like, welcome to Harlem. And yeah. they could tell we weren't from there, you know, it's, it's not like the scary version that you no, might, you know, I think all. they're trying to counter. There's that. a renewed energy of, you know, they're growing, they're developing, they're, uh, I hope they keep their cachet, though, because yeah. that's the beauty of New York. That struck me at first, how each neighborhood has its own um, um, they little... They have the Apollo Theater exactly. and their yeah. restaurants and their speakeasies, yeah. jazz clubs. Exactly. Thanks so much, Rita. Thank you. All Drink to That is hosted and produced by myself, Levy Dalton. Aaron Scala has contributed original pieces. Editorial assistance has been provided by Bill Kimsey. The show music was performed and composed by Rob Moose and Thomas Bartlett. Show artwork by Alicia Tanoyan. T-shirts, sweatshirts, coffee mugs, and so much more, including show stickers, notebooks, and even gift wrap are available for sale if you check the show website, alldrinktothatpod.com. That's I-L-L, drinktothatpod.com, which is the same place you'd go to sign up for our email list or to make one of the crucially important donations that help keep this show operating. You can donate from anywhere using PayPal or Stripe on the show website. Remember to hit subscribe or to follow this show in your favorite podcast app, please. That's super important to see every episode. And thank you for listening.